Welcome to To The Point Cybersecurity Podcast. Each week, join Eric Trexler and Rachel Lyon to explore the latest in global cybersecurity news, trending topics, and industry transformation initiatives impacting governments, enterprises, and our way of life. Now, let's get to the point. Hello, everyone. Welcome to To The Point Podcast. I'm Rachel Lyon, here with host Eric Trexler, and I'm very excited for us to get into part two of our conversation with Greg Tuhill. He's the director of Carnegie Mellon University's Software Engineering Institute CERT Division. They help government and industry organizations develop and operate software systems that are secure and reliable. They are the center of the cyber universe, uh, and I am so excited to get this conversation picking back up. So now let's get to the point. So I'm, I'm going to I'm going to summarize those quickly. I'm, as I'm thinking through it, I was making some notes. So you you built the team. Really, you brought all the federal CISOs together. You built the team right up front. And then the second piece around the multi-factor authentication, which if you started in 2003, I mean it's a it's a core pillar of most zero trust architectures right. today, which started in 2010, which didn't get popular until, I don't know, 2018, maybe right. um, like really adopted. But you, you, you basically built the measurement or the dashboard to, I don't want to say shame people, but show progress, right. like to really, to really drive a focus on it across the team. And we were able to paint the picture that because of the lessons learned from the OPM breach, this could really make a difference. And if we right. didn't do it, then we were opening ourselves up to a repeat performance by a, the same or another bad actor. Yes. Okay. So you built the team, you built the visibility around it, you tied it to something that was critically important, the security, cybersecurity of America's organizations, really, right? DOD, yep. ICC. People's data. Protecting the people's data. That's yeah. what we were doing. Okay. Wow. I mean, to me, that's that's a 30 year, your 30 year Air Force career, all those experiences. Like you said, you didn't come into the job not, right. not having that background, bringing that together to lead from the front. That's impressive. That's fantastic. Yeah. Uh, thank you. Uh, just just my just the way I see you thinking through that or the way I'm thinking through it now, looking back on it, th that's a that should be a lesson for people on how to start something new and drive to results at a a scale most of us can't even comprehend, but we'll, we'll certainly never approach. Meaning yeah. the government of the United States of America. That's a pretty big, pretty big uh, effort there. Wow. Okay. Um, what I would you have it. done differently while you um, were there? Like your, your first CISO of, of the United States of America, what's one thing you would have like, I just would have, you know, if I could do it all over again, I would have gone down this path instead of that path. You know, I really haven't given much thought to that because that's, that's not why we're here today. <laughs> yeah, that's that's just not part of my ethos, you know, okay. uh, and maybe it's the Air Force uh, part of me. You know, um, I, I got a wingman who makes sure that uh, what's behind me is uh, covered. I'm looking forward as the flight lead. Um, I'm really proud of the work that my team did. I'm proud of the fact that we still have a federal chief information security officer yeah. and that it continues to be magnified in importance. Um, so, uh, you know, I, I think that as we take a look uh, moving forward, more and more organizations are seeing the value of having a chief information security yes. officer to 
focus on the um, not just the systems, but the data itself and protecting the data. And the shot clock ran out on me. But as we were looking at my strategy for the federal government, um, securing the data and understanding the data itself was a, a centerpiece, the keystone of that all. And um, we didn't have chief data officers back then. Uh, I think maybe, Eric, um, if, if I could go with Mr. Peabody into the Wayback Machine, I would have told the president that we needed to have chief data officers in every department and agency. But at that point, um, we, we had the throttles fully up and uh, we're, uh, we're pretty proud of what we did when we were in service, my team and I. Uh, but I think uh, in retrospect, now that you've mentioned it, we probably should have pushed for chief data officers uh, to be more prevalent back then. Well, we, we do see a good bit, and, and I agree with that. I, I think it's a great thing. We, we are seeing a lot of uh, organizations talk about high-value assets. I'm starting to hear them talk about risk, mm -hmm. right? Where, where mm -hmm. I, if, if you took me back, I don't know, five, five plus years ago, everything was on a level plane, yeah. right? Everything was, we've got to protect the whole organization from everything out there. And I think people are starting to realize that that's not very plausible, but right. you can't protect everything. But with high value assets, looking at where are the crown jewels right. and how do we protect them and, and what is the risk to this data or, or this program or this mission, we're, we're starting to see a turn there, which I think it sounds like it, it, it originated from the, those, those first years. Well, and, and it did. You know, we, we did with the Cyber National Action Plan, and I was on the executive steering committee on that. Um, we went and we tasked all of the departments and agencies to identify their high value assets. And we had to train okay. them to think, you know, what, what is your high value asset? And, and what uh, year was that? Uh, 15. Yeah. So I, I'll tell you my experience. Let's see. That was probably, I was at a Department of Justice meeting. It had to be about probably early 16, late 15, early 16. And I heard the term high value asset for the first time. Yeah. Which well, is very government-like. Yeah, we've been using that uh, term in the military all the time. You know, right. so, you know, we would have priority resources. Uh, so as a, a base commander at Keesler Air Force Base, where I had 18 C-130Js, I had four... C-21s. I had a major regional hospital. I had the flight line, um, you know, where the hurricane hunters would take off and land. You know, I knew I had priority A resources that required armed guards 24 by 7. Mm -hmm. I had priority B resources that needed to be emergency, you know, restored within, you know, two, three hours. And then I had Everything else, priority C resources. Right. So we knew what our high value assets were and we apportioned our resources accordingly. So here you get this military guy who comes into DHS and is running the end kick and it's part of the, you know, that uh, effort for the cyber national action plan. You know, identifying the high value assets was a no brainer. I mean, we needed to do that because. You know, there's a, a great quote from Frederick the Great, which every war college uh, graduate should remember. And it's uh, Frederick the Great supposedly said, he who defends everything equally defends nothing. Nothing. 
And what we wanted to do is this, we wanted to apportion our cyber defenses in an intelligence manner. So we actually tasked every department and agency, identify your high value assets. We trained them to understand it's, it's all about the data, mm-hmm. but you also have to factor in where does that data reside? Where is it processed? Who inputs it? Who archives it? You know, all of the above. But we, we were trying to change the mindset so that we understood the value of the data and where it lived. And then from there, we could better apportion and allocate our defensive resources. And, and I, I, I think I'm saying in 2016, that was the first time from, a, from an IT or cybersecurity perspective, I really heard clients, customers start talking about it. I, I agree with you from the military side, it's, it's something that's been ingrained in the system. But from an, a security side, I don't think I, I, I'm pretty sure I haven't heard the, uh, I didn't hear them thinking in that way prior to that. Well, we were bringing it in across the federal government in 15 and- uh, Well, it worked. I, I'm, I'm pleased that it's now part of the modern lexicon. In fact, at CERT, you've got an enterprise risk and resilience management capability. So I hope that's thriving. Absolutely. As a matter of fact, we're having a bunch of government agencies, um, not only the DOD, but DHS and other government agencies that are asking us as the federally funded research and development center to come in and help them understand their um, uh, risk and resilience model. You know, we've got the copyrighted CERT uh, risk and resilience model that helps them better understand where the risk exposure is. And our uh, cyber risk assessment uh, is a, a, a tool that we come in and we uh, help unearth with their, you know, just by question and answer and uh, some on, on-site uh, work that we do, we help them understand where their blind spots are. But also, uh, we just don't basically say, okay, so here's your risk, bye. You know, we help them understand what types of controls and countermeasures, business process improvements they can use to better protect the information that they're trying to protect. And do you see that folding in with the, with concepts or, 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 I guess, certifications like CMMC? CMM, yeah, I got the two M's and the C. Do, do you see that folding in or do you see one is more compliance and one is more as risk and resilience of the business? Um, boy, that's a loaded question uh, <laughs> these days. Uh, I don't mean yeah. to set you up. I'm just curious. Yeah. I think that the uh, what we're doing with the CRA, the Cyber Risk Assessment, uh, that's, uh, that leverages the uh, CERT risk and resilience model um, okay. is a very proactive means of uh, assessing what your risk exposure is. And then it also provides you, uh, as an organizational leader, a, uh, a game plan for how to address those risks uh, to make your organization more resilient. And my students at Carnegie Mellon, because I teach at Carnegie Mellon as well, my students, they say, hey, Greg, you know, how do you define resilience? And I, I, I kind of jokingly say, well, you know, I, I grew up in a, a, a household with a bunch of brothers and I attended parochial school. And for us, resilience was being able to take a punch and keep on going. Yeah. Eric, you're from Philly. You, you'd probably take the Rocky Balboa model. You know, it's 
It's not about whether you're going to get a hit. It's about how hard you get hit and keep on going. That's how winners are found, you know. Uh, so, you know, when we go in, uh, we're being proactive. And I think what we are seeing now, not only in the government, but in industry, is, is there's a thirst to be more proactive than reactive. Uh, you don't necessarily want to wait for a breach or a ransomware attack. You want to be able to identify your weak spots so that you can make a value and risk-based decision as to how you want to protect against the threat environment that's out there. Rachel, that is the dream for yes. me anyway. Well, like, we talk about dream. that all the time, right? I mean, we do. more of an offensive versus defensive strategy and you know, I know you feel that, you know, uh, private private companies shouldn't shouldn't execute that. That should be a government thing. But um, you, you got to get ahead of it. And, it, you know, it kind of leads me to this. I can't stop thinking about ransomware, Greg. Uh, yeah. You know, I was I was looking kind of before we got on the call and, you know, what we got Fujifilms, Fujifilm, Steamship Authority, McDonald's, JBS, New Zealand Hospitals, Lancaster Pipeline, ISD. The Irish Hospital. I mean, go exactly. on and on go and on. And on. And uh, CNA Financial, $40 million in ransomware paid. And now I'm seeing, you know, these stats. Uh, former Cisco CEO John Chambers said we can expect 65,000 ransomware attacks this year. I mean, you know, how do we get ahead of this? And I, and I love the, the search perspective about sharing information. And I feel like that's got to be somehow key here on, on how we finally get ahead of this. But what are your thoughts here on this really scary, hairy problem? Well, if it were easy to fix, it would already be done. Right. I think you're gonna, um, we're going to have to do a couple of things to buy down our risk. And we're never going to get risk to zero. Anybody who tries to get risk to zero... Uh, you might as well just bubble wrap yourself and stay at home. And uh, I was going to say, you're, you're living in a bubble. It's not going <laughs> to. Yeah. And yeah. even it's, then the bubble could pop. That's right. You're never going to get risk to zero. So I think there's a couple of components, Rachel. First of all, I, I think that from a public policy standpoint, um, we really need to make sure that this is identified as criminal activity and mm -hmm. the consequences for folks and uh, are, are going to be such that um, our, our law enforcement officials, uh, in concert with law enforcement officials around the world, we're going to hunt you down. Yeah. You know, if you are engaged in this, we're going to hunt you down and you're going to be held accountable to the full mm -hmm. extent of the law. Mm -hmm. And oh, by the way, it needs to be more than just a hand slap. It right. needs to be commensurate with the crime. You know, it used to be uh, a show when I was a kid on, you know, that was shown on TV, uh, uh, Beretta. And it was, you know, oh, don't yes. do the crime. Yes. Yeah, don't do the crime. If you can't do the time, just don't do it. Well, we need to make sure that from a public policy standpoint in the law, that if you're engaged in this type of behavior, it's criminal and you're going to be held accountable. Secondly, from a dip diplomatic standpoint, we really do need to make sure that um, the folks that are able or that are doing these type of attacks are not given safe harbor right. in other countries. And that is really difficult to do. And I think that's if I were President Biden uh, meeting with uh, President Putin, that would be on my agenda of things to talk about, you know, safe harbor. Right. But let's also remember safe harbor goes both ways. So. 
if we're going to say, hey, you know, these guys are in Russia and they're crooks. Well, you know, we got crooks everywhere, including in North America. Mm-hmm. So, uh, and, and it, we don't like to give up U.S. citizens to foreign countries. Right? Exactly. So, but it's bad juju, and we, you know, we should not tolerate the the ransomware. Uh, third is is from a best practices standpoint. There's some technology out there that can buy down your risk of mm-hmm. ransomware. We know that most ransomware is is delivered through uh, phishing or spear phishing emails. Mm-hmm. Some are spray and pray. Others mm-hmm. are, you know, very focused spear phishing, and some mm-hmm. are even directed towards senior executives, right. which we call whaling. Mm-hmm. You know, where they come right in and they look and they smell legitimate. But there's ways, you know, like in- implementing DKIM and some other technologies that have been mm-hmm. around out there that can t- can help you filter out those, you know, uh, email sources that aren't legitimate, that aren't digitally uh, authenticated. You know, the the phantom VM that comes up looking like it's coming from Acme Corporation, right. but is really. You know, it's it's a, a phantom clone that's just there to deliver ransomware. You know, so the technologies like DKIM, um, that, that needs to go down. Uh, you know, we need to be putting them in place. And the federal government finally put in DKIM back uh, starting in 2017. Wow. And we've seen some dips in organizations that have installed some of these countermeasures in place. And then the third thing. Uh, on top of that, so we've got to train our people so that they are, in fact, keenly aware that this is going on. And then the final thing, well, maybe not the final thing, but the last for right now in this conversation is, you know, don't pay. Right. You know, don't pay. Architect yeah. so that you can be resilient and, you know, uh, don't pay. The moment. Take away the incentive. Mm-hmm. That's right. Uh, if. If you architect properly so that you, in fact, have a pristine copy and uh, can make sure that that ransomware is not in that final gold disk uh, repository of your data, then you basically get rid of that whole, you know, criminal enterprises raison d'etre. And like Willie Sutton, these folks go to where the money is. And as long as they feel like they have a business model where they can get some money, they're going to go do it. So I think that's an important thing, too, is is architect uh, for resilience and don't pay. Well, and there's very little risk to them. If the the country they're operating from isn't going to even blink and they can just spray and pray and go after everybody until they pull in money. I mean, why? who wouldn't do it? Right. Yeah. Well, assume you have a criminal bent, right? Like right. who? Yeah. Like it's pretty easy, low consequence, low risk. Again, so you've got to. I, I agree. I think you've got to take the incentive away, and you got to increase the cost. Yeah. Well, and mm-hmm. I, you know, there's a lot of folks that say, well, you know, for those companies that are paying the ransoms, they need to be penalized. No, this is America. We don't penalize the victims for crying out loud. Um, but you know. We, we've got to do a better job, I think, on multiple levels mm-hmm. in uh, public policy, diplomacy, educating the workforce, and then architecting for resilience. And I think that will help buy down our risk and our risk exposure. So a lot of times when we talk public-private partnership, we, we're talking information sharing, 
right? We, and, and there's breach disclosure that we're, we've been talking about. But really, we need a public-private partnership on how to hands- handle ransomware. Like, don't pay, but okay, government, are you going to help me? How are you going to help me? How are you going to take that incentive away? Yeah. Or, or well, increase I, the risk. You know, it's, it's one thing for the government to say, yeah, we're not going to pay. Yeah. Because they're going to just pass on the cost to the, to the taxpayers. But for if you're a business person and all of a sudden you're in gridlock, oh, heck yeah, there's plenty of incentives to pay. So the thing about it, though, is, is um, you know, what, an $11 million that JBS put out there? Reportedly. Uh, um, what could that, you know, what could $10 million have done had they invested in $10 million in right. better security, better architecture, better configuration? That would have had a much longer lasting and better investment than paying off an $11 million ransom. So I think, you know, having served on public boards uh, and, you know, actually with private boards rather, but, you know, having served in uh, profit and loss company boards, you know, folks in the boardroom and the executive teams in business need to be taking a really introspective look right now and saying, you know, I'm going to roll the dice on ransomware or I can make these enhancements to my uh, my system so that I can, in fact, take a punch and keep on going. Um, That's a longer lasting, better return than having to just spray, you know, just pray that I'm not going to get hit with the ransomware. And oh, I hope we get there. Yeah. And as a a, a cautionary warning, uh, take a really good look at your cyber insurance out there, because not every Cyber insurance policy is going to pay for a ransomware or reimburse you. I I hope we get there. My my experience in 25 years now is whether it's legal with email archiving where where there's a discovery or something, Office of General Counsel will pay anything after the fact. Like they deal with it after the fact. But for the business to invest up front, you know, at a greater level is always more difficult. Right. right. You've got to go make the case where once you get hit with something, whether it's a lawsuit, ransomware, you name it, there's no case to be made. Now it's react time and business is really good at that. Yep. Yeah. That's been my experience. But Rachel, we're out of time. We are it's out of time. time again. I know. I know. It's so sad because I could just keep talking about this. This is so fascinating, Greg. It's your insights. I really appreciate you know, all the great information you shared and, you know, kind of uh, in your experience and, and what you've seen and, and how to break down problems in a way that they're actually, you know, you can start cracking them down, um, you know, making some movement forward. It's very impressive what you've done in your career. And thank you for your service. I, it's well, thank great you. to have you on the show. So for no, more information, a- people can go to cmu.edu slash division slash cert, I believe. Or you can go to uh, cert.org and it'll uh, resolve to the correct address. You know, we got a shortcut there. That's uh, what I love, simplicity in my life. So find out what CERT is doing. It's a nonprofit, correct? It is a federally funded research FFRDC. and development okay, center, perfect. right, an FFRDC. You can go to uh, SEI for Software Engineering Institute dot CMU dot EDU. And that'll take you to... Um, our, our organization, and then you can drill down from there. But sei.cmu for Carnegie Mellon University, 
cert.edu. Um, and then when it comes to the cert itself, yeah, you can go to cert, C-E-R-T dot org, and it'll resolve and it'll give you right into the SCI so um, uh, link there. Love it. Brigadier General, retired to hill. I am looking forward to a lot more coming out of cert over the yes. next two decades. Yes. I, I think it's, it's, it's a great effort for this country and really appreciate what you and the team are doing. That's as close as we've ever come to a commercial on this podcast. But I got to tell you, Rachel, it is absolutely warranted here. You know, the work CERT has yes. done for the world, 100%. for the globe has been has 100%. been phenomenal. Yeah. Well, I'm a proud member of this team and uh, we have some brilliant minds that are working very hard to make sure that the nation's prosperity and its security are better protected by building a stronger cyber ecosystem. Wow. Thanks for having me join you today. Well, thank, thank you for you, your Greg. time. And, and to sure. our listeners, I'm going to take us out, Rachel, because I want to get credit here. Yeah. To our <laughs> listeners, smash the subscribe button. Specifically, leave some feedback about this episode. Rachel and I have a little contest going on who can get more ratings. Uh, but give us the feedback. Let us know what you like. But specifically for this episode, if you give us some, some feedback, that would be awesome. And give us a uh, give us a rating. Subscribe. And we'll see you next week. That's right. Thanks for joining us on the To The Point Cybersecurity Podcast, brought to you by Forcepoint. For more information and show notes from today's episode, please visit www.forcepoint.com slash govpodcast. And don't forget to subscribe and leave a review on Apple Podcasts or Google Podcasts. 